You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. While you're doing that, while you're turning there and uh, kids are heading down, let me remind us what we're doing this morning. Like I, like I already said, um, we've been taking the summer to take a look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what we call a follower. And we've been doing that with the, the way that we do things here as a church by going verse by verse through the book of First Peter. And one of the things that we have seen in both this book and in the Scriptures in general is that being a disciple of Jesus involves, on the one hand, knowing and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, and not just of Jesus Christ, but of God the Father and the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. So then being a disciple of Jesus means knowing knowing Christ. But on the other hand, the Scriptures also say that being a disciple of Jesus means showing Christ uh, or, or imitating Him into the world. And the New Testament book of 1 Peter was written originally to help communities of Christians do just that in a world in which they felt continually more and more like aliens and strangers, like they didn't belong, right? And this morning our text focuses on this reality that following Christ will mean showing Him. So if you have your place in the Scriptures, would you stand, as is our habit, in honor of God's Word? I'll be reading... First uh, Peter three verses eight to twenty two. This is God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called to, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not, not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Friends, this is God's Word, given so that you and I might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come into this time, whatever we've brought with us into this room, and all of us have brought something, you know I have. Would you let those things melt away? Let even 
my words melt away, let instead the gospel of Jesus come to the fore. So that your name would be made great, that our lives would be transformed because there is no hope in this life or the next apart from Jesus and his gospel. And so we ask, Lord, that you would meet us now and preach it to us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Have a seat. There is a, a growing field in, um, in both, I guess, psychology and in education that is called adult developmental psychology. And um, Robert Keegan, who teaches at uh, Harvard University, this is kind of one of his gigs, and, and uh, Dr. Keegan notes how one of the ways in which we grow is, is that children, up to, you know, hopefully about adolescence, are marked by a unique way of looking at the world. It's, it's uh, called consequence reward, right? You know how this works. They, they either do behaviors or avoid behaviors based on whether or not they will be rewarded for those things or, or meet with a consequence. Now, sometime in our later teen years, we are supposed to transition from this particular way of viewing the world to the actual adoption of values, okay? What, what I mean by that is is that um, it's not that we don't do X because we will get punished for it. We don't do X because that's not what we do in our family. Now, regardless of the fact that most of us in this room (laughs) are still stuck in uh, reward-consequence behavioral patterns, which is marked by the fact that um, for most of us, when accountability is removed from us, we do whatever we like, right? Uh, Kind of proves that point. Regardless of that, our text this morning speaks to the exact reality that Dr. Keegan is talking about. Because you see, Peter is arguing that essential to being a Christian, one of the essential marks of being a Christian is bearing the family resemblance. Actually looking like the one that we say we follow. That's how we're going to be looking at this text this morning. We're going to do that in three ways. And as always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. You can leave it there if it's not. Okay, We're going to look at showing, showing Christ through our character, we're going to look at showing Christ through our confession, and then finally we're going to look at the fact that we need to show Christ, okay? <laughs> through character, through confession, and finally showing Christ. All right, let's get started. Let's start by looking at how we show Christ through character, first by seeing a community character. Look down at verse 8 if you can. Peter says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, show sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and a humble mind. Now stop there. Because I want to say, I want to do two things with this particular thing. I want to talk about those words because we assume we know what those mean, but we need to understand them individually, and then we need to say something about them as a group. But let's look at them individually. Um, the first one is of being of one mind. Now, some of us here um, are imagining that what this means, Peter calling all Christians to be of one mind, means some kind of um, indoctrinated, uh, brainwashed parrots, right? All saying the same thing. This vision that we have of, of, of uh, these communities that build walls and get guns and have this one strong leader in the middle of them, they all just kind of say the same thing. Uh, that, that is not what he means at all. Because unity of mind, the, the way that um, Peter's expressing this in the original and, and in other contexts, is not everyone thinking the same things, it's everyone having the same goal. It, it's not everyone believing exactly the same thing, it's everyone having the same goal. If, if, you're, if you're a musician or you think musically, it means um, everybody's singing in harmony. Uh, everyone has a different part, but they're all singing from the same sheet of music, right? Now, the problem comes when that person who's singing their particular line thinks that their line is the sheet of music, but the point is they're all singing on the same sheet of music. Um, They may differ on minor points, but still be of 
one mind. Okay? Now, of course, it is the gospel as defined by the New Testament that is the piece of music that Peter's talking about. He's not saying you can just kind of believe anything willy-nilly as long as we all kind of think that we're heading towards the same destination, that we're all okay. Uh, it is the gospel that is the same sheet of music. The point is that you can be united on that and yet differ in minor points and still be of one mind. Okay? So that's a being of one mind. The second comes this idea of showing sympathy. Showing sympathy... It doesn't just kind of walking around with an awe face on all the time. It means, it means entering into the needs and concerns of another. Brotherly love it means pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It means um, drawing others into the kind of affection you have for your family. Now, I know some of us are like, really? Because that ain't all that great. But understand that in the, in the first century, kinship relationships were the closest you could have. Your family, you were loyal to them. You, you cared about the corporate entity of your family. And what Peter's saying here, which would have been radical during the time of the New Testament, is that this kind of loyalty, this kind of affection, isn't to be reserved just for blood, but for those who are in the church. A church which then transcends uh, racial, socioeconomic, all of these different barriers. Okay? Having compassion, that's, that's an interesting one because it is so often used in Scripture to speak of God, and specifically in the Gospels, to describe Jesus' posture towards the crowds, right? Some of you will know this. You've read, some of you read the Gospels. You know that oftentimes it says Jesus looked down the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd or, or some such thing. He has compassion on those who are hurting. But then lastly comes this idea of humility. Humility... Now, I think in our culture we play lip service to humility. We think humility is a pretty good thing. Uh, But at the same time, we don't really mean it. Uh, Humility in first century culture was absolutely disdained. Because in first century, especially in the the Roman world, most, though though you're talking about a bunch of individual city-states and all that stuff, but for the most part, what you're dealing with is an honor-shame culture where public face, the way you look in front of other people, is the most important thing to you. So being humble wasn't seen as a good thing. That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? I mean, in the Roman world, you had people who would, who would pay to have monuments made of themselves. And I'm not talking like really, really, really wealthy people. I'm talking like, you know, upwardly mobile middle class people, okay? Who'd have monuments made to themselves po- posted in the, in the city square of how great they are. Because that's what you did. It wasn't like, if somebody, if one of us did that today here and like we, we put up a plaque on Beverly Street, right? Dan Hancock does this. This plaque posted by Dan Hancock, the greatest wood carver who's ever lived. You know, and we'd all go, man, what is wrong with that dude? Like, they would see it as, well, of course, he must be a really great wood carver. You know, it, it was normal. But humility is disdained. It is a sign of weakness. Now, as a whole, here's what's important about all these things. These are all communal traits, aren't they? They're all things that you can only realize when with other people. In other words, they're meant to be practiced within the Christian community, within the church. In other words, these aren't the ways that Christians are to interact with the world, but with one another. But here's the reality, though, right? I mean, these things that we just talked about, especially humility, uh, but also brotherly love, sympathy, compassion, entering into other people's needs or concerns, these rarely define anyone's posture towards others. Better yet, the way most of us think about the church, right? So why is that? The reason is because all of these things, sympathy, compassion, brotherly love, humility, being united in one mind, these are radically other-centered. 
Did you notice that? All of these have a strong pull towards making not the individual the center of the universe, but in Peter's context, the church. Not the individual needs, not my needs, my wants, but ours. All of these call us to something that we're not used to. They don't say, here's the way you get to this, you need to think less of yourselves. They say you need to think of yourself less. Not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. Ultimately, though, the reason why Peter is calling uh, the churches that he's writing to to this is because all of these characterize the life of Jesus. Peter uses these ideas here. Paul does the, almost the exact same list in Romans 12. And, and, he, and both of them are doing this because these are all things Jesus did. The point of this is that we show our allegiance to Jesus, to the world, as the church is shaped by a set of standards that are radically opposed to the standards of our, of our, of our world at large. They are radically other-centered and full of self-forgetfulness. And so that's how the church interacts with itself. But what about with a hostile world? Look down at verses 9 to 12. Peter, Peter says this, Don't repay evil for evil, uh, or cursing for cursing, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Now, let's stop there. Most of us, when we hear this, think of two things. We think that what he's talking about is either doormat theology or passive aggression. Right? Because it's only really two categories we have for this. What I mean by doormat theology is, is that idea that it's kind of like the, the Ned Flanders thing, you know? Don't look at me like that. You know who Ned Flanders is, right? Simpsons, okay, Ned Flanders thing where like he just keeps getting abused constantly and he just smiles about it and everything's fine and it's, all, and it's okay and you just pretend like it never happened. Um, Passive-aggressive notions are, are those things where, where on the outside you say everything's fine, but on the inside you're seething, right? And you let it out and, look, now I know you all know what that is because, like, most of us in here are like that. So we, we, we say everything's fine, we're, we're fine, that wasn't a big deal, no big deal, not a big deal. But on the inside we're like, I'm going to get you, one day I'm going to make you pay. That, that's passive-aggression, right? Neither of these are Christian. Neither is. What Peter is calling Christians to is nothing less than the imitation of Jesus. Now, can I tell you that this is one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian faith, for me especially, but I think for all of us, because if you look at the life of Jesus, what we see is someone who bore the sins of the world. And I don't just mean on the cross, like we're going to get to that. I mean like every day of his life. You ever reckon with the fact that for 33 years this dude lived among sinners and he didn't sin against them? He went through middle school, or at least the middle school years, and was perfect. You think that everyone was like really endeared to him because he was so good. He also showed up how bad they were. I'm sure that went well in his own family, right? I mean, how do you think your older brother, why can't you be like your brother? Like he's the, he's the God man, I'm sorry, you know, I can't do that. And so you go, like... But he bore with this. He bore with the sins of everyone around him. He faced false accusations, betrayals, even claims that he was demon-possessed. He faced judgmental attitudes towards him based on those he ate with. And he responded to this not by standing up and retaliating against them, though, quite frankly, he had perfectly valid reasons to do that. He responded to it Completely differently. So he didn't, he didn't react by aggressing. He also didn't react by just passively taking it. He, re, he actively did something 
He blessed them. He blessed them in response. And what Peter is calling his hearers to is not just to abstain from taking revenge. That's where most of us end. If if we think we're doing really good with the Christian life, if when someone does something really nasty to us and we're like, I'm not going to hurt you because I love Jesus, and we walk away. That is not what we're being called to. We are being called not just to passively, like to not take revenge, but to actively, actively seek to bless those who are committing evil against us. And that's where this quotation comes in in verses 10 to 12. I don't know if you notice, many of your Bibles have them kind of set apart, right? It's a, it's a quotation from Psalm 34. Uh, and on the one hand, it's important because it reinforces what Peter's saying, right? Don't lie. <laughs> Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies. Um, do good. Seek peace. Uh, shalom. Seek fullness. Not just seek it, but pursue it. The same word that's used for persecution. It's like chase after it. Hunt it down. Hunt down shalom. These are all important things, right? And then comes the confidence that the Lord is watching, that He is the one caring for you so you can put your trust in Him. That's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, though, it's, it's a well-known truth that when an author in the New Testament, because this was normal during his day, when an author in the New Testament cites a verse or two out of some passage, that what he's doing is, a, is drawing in the entire context of that passage. It was just something that was normal. is the way you did things because you're living in a primarily oral culture, right? So they, would, they, under, they, they memorized a lot more Scripture than we did. Not everyone had a Bible. As a matter of fact, you might have one per town. And so you just you got used to memorizing things. So if, if someone were to say, well, you know, whoever desires to love life to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies, they could probably finish it for you. Okay, why is that important? Because Psalm 34, Psalm 34 was an important part of the first Christians' uh, Old Testament reinforcing of the life and work of Jesus. Because in verse 20, you have something that's quoted multiple times throughout the scripture, throughout the New Testament, when people are talking about Jesus, that that God didn't let his his holy one, any of his bones, be broken. It was part of the, the verses they were using to point to the life and work of Jesus. And so again, what Peter is saying is that the same watchfulness that God had over the life of Jesus, who actively blessed those who persecuted him, that this will be for you as you seek to follow after him by blessing those that are doing you evil. Okay, now the reality is that all this is strikingly countercultural, right? But the implications are far more so. And these are the things we don't often think about. Because when the New Testament, and the New Testament does talk about this often, when the New Testament talks about Jesus actually conquering sin, conquering evil, dethroning even the devil, I know we don't think about the devil, okay? Enter into the world of the New Testament for a minute for me. Dethroning the devil. Paul talks about the fact that Jesus disarmed the principalities in power, defeating evil. He did this not by beating it at its own game. And striking it down, right? Because that's what, that's what, quite frankly, the Jews of his day were expecting. A first century Jewish Caesar who would rise up and do all these things. He didn't do it like that. Instead, he bore all that they could dish out. He blessed and he called for their forgiveness. And so when we are tempted to fight the world's battles, or God's, Uh, by the world's methods, we need to remember not just what Peter, Paul, and even Jesus calls us to, which is what we have here, but how Jesus did what he came to do. He met evil with good. He met curse with blessing. And it won. 
Now, that isn't the only way we show Christ. We certainly show Christ uh, through character, but we also do it through confession. Look down at verses 13 to 14 to see it through suffering. Now, Peter has just said, like, look, uh, you, you know, you're going to take evil, but, but bless instead, don't curse. And, and so th- we need to understand this through the, the immediate context. Uh, but I want to say three things about what Peter's doing here in verses 13 and 14. First, well, when we think of suffering, we often don't think of what they had in mind in the first century. In, in the first century, the, especially the folks in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, those are the folks that Peter's talking to. When they took suffering, suffering for them looked like um, social marginalization, scorn, some violence, certainly economic pressures. They couldn't go into the marketplace. No one would sell them anything, right? Um, they, were, they were seen as um, antisocial, unpatriotic, um, uh, menace to society people. Right? That's what Christians were in the Roman world. Menace to society. Why? Well, they're atheists. They didn't worship the gods. And the gods, is what, that's what keeps society together. So if you don't do that, you obviously are antisocial. Okay? That's what's going on for them. When we think of suffering, we think of like being looked down upon, having someone call us a bigot. Uh, or, or intolerant because we believe we actually have the nerve to think the scriptures actually still apply. Um, that could be part of what's going on, but there's certainly more. All right. Secondly, is that Peter isn't saying necessarily that this is happening to you. In fact, he says if this should happen. So he's talking about it being a likely possibility, but not something that's currently happening. And and what he says is that suffering for doing good is not a sign of God's disfavor. Now, you and I were. I think everyone in this room is American, which means that we think that if you are feeling any kind of discomfort, something is wrong. Like, something is not right with the world. Okay? And we gotta, we, we need to do whatever we can to fix it. And so if you're feeling any kind of discomfort, God is against you. Okay? We have whole systems of theology that proclaim that. Peter is saying, no, no, no. You can't believe that unless you think, of course, that God hated Jesus. Uh, nor is it somehow a sign that you are somehow out of God's will. It may be, in fact, a sign that you're doing exactly the right thing, right? But lastly, he's, the way that this concept of suffering, if you look down, he, he picks it up in verses 13 and 14, right there, and then in verse 17, he talks about it again. It's framing what he talks about in the middle, and what he talks about in the middle is being able to give an account or give a, a, literally an apology, which doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means a defense for what you believe. So he's framing suffering around this idea. What that does is it tells us that suffering for doing good, suffering for keeping public allegiance to Jesus actually shows the world that you follow him. Okay? Here's what I mean. If you are willing to bear public reproach because you believe that the only way to be right with God is trusting in Jesus, you are actually showing that you don't trust in, uh, in people thinking you're cool. Because they won't. And it's okay. If you're willing to not get ahead in your job because you aren't willing to slander your coworker or, or cheat your client, it shows that you're trusting Jesus for your security and not necessarily in, in your uh, finances or in your successes. And if you're willing to go to jail as a hate criminal for declaring what the Bible says about who we are as sinners in need of a Savior, it shows that your allegiance is not to comfort or security, but to a Savior who said the same things and met the same fate. Okay? But it isn't just through suffering, though, but also through words. Look down at verses 15 and 16. Peter says this, In your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. All right. Here it is, guys. I know there's this really popular slogan out there, right? It's been uh, credited to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Let me tell you a couple things about that. First, that dude never said that. He never said it. As a matter of fact, biographers and historians of St. Francis would tell you that is the least likely thing to come out of his mouth because he was a preacher on the level of Jonathan Edwards and an evangelist on the level of Billy Sunday. That dude was not going to say that. Okay? Whatever we want to think of that. The second is that that phrase is markedly nonsensical because the gospel is verbal. The gospel is verbal. It is a proclamation. It is a message that must be declared and believed. And what Peter is saying here is that all Christians, all Christians, have to be able to express that gospel. Now, most of us get really uncomfortable at this point, right? Because we would rather leave this to the trained professionals, as if, like, pastors and other Christian workers somehow don't get nervous or uh, anxious when sharing the gospel with people. Um, Now, when I say this, I don't mean that Peter is saying that every Christian should be prepared to give an authoritative defense of every potential issue with Christianity, right? That's why most of us are like, I don't know, what if this question comes up? What if this question comes up? Like, that's not, Peter's saying, look, okay, that's, that's not the issue. What Peter is saying is that you can't show Jesus to the world without declaring what it is you believe about him. Namely, that we are beloved by God, but alienated from Him by our sin. That we are helpless to fix this problem, but that God came to fix it Himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that we aren't asked to earn this, but instead to turn from our independence and receive this as a gift by faith. That's all. That's all. Three points. That's really easy, right? Listen, some of us struggle to express that. If that is you, we want to help you there. So if you're, if you're a regular here at Holy Cross, be, be on the lookout for some upcoming training on that. But others of us just don't want to rock the boat, right? Because we don't, we don't want to seem unloving. There's a, there's a rather um, famous celebrity atheist who's a, um, he's a magician. His name's Penn Jillette, right? Penn and Teller. Penn Jillette said this uh, recently. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's coming from the mouth of someone who doesn't believe a lick of what we believe. Listen, you aren't loving someone by not sharing the gospel. All you are doing is simply saving yourself from social awkwardness. You're loving yourself, and so am I. Okay? But lastly, let's talk about showing Christ. Look down at verse 18. This is, in, this is super important, guys. Because Christianity isn't about being good. It isn't even about being of one mind, sympathetic, uh, having compassion, brotherly love, and humility, right? I mean, none of that matters one bit without verse 18. Peter says this, For Christ himself suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. All right, tons to say here. Let me be quick. Some of you right now are thinking like, why is it that Christians always have to keep coming back to this like 
death stuff and and sin and all that jazz. Like, why can't we just all agree that we should be kind? <laughs> that actually deserves a huge response. Uh, but in short, the reality is we aren't. We aren't all kind. And so something more has to be said. And here's what I mean. All these ideas above, humility, compassion, blessing in the face of evil. The Bible declares uh, two things about these. That on the one hand, this is exactly what you and I were made for. That's why it kind of seems good, right? Until we actually think about the implications of it. But, but actually saying it, we're like, yeah, that seems good and right. So on the one hand, we're made for that. So that, that is what you and I should be. But on the other hand, it also declares that it's something we can never accomplish. We can't because of this thing called sin. Now, when I say that, some of us are thinking like bad behaviors. And when I say bad behaviors, what I mean is most of us, when we think of sin, we think of like drugs and sex. Right? As if those are, that's it. That's all God cares about. Okay? Um, but that's not really it at all. Sin, according to the scriptures, is a state of being. A state of being that affects our behaviors. And so... According to the scriptures, sin can look like addiction and promiscuity. It can also look a lot like moralism and self-righteousness. You know, the difference between Christianity and the other world religions, be it Islam, Buddhism, or the kind of the pseudo-Christian ones like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, stuff like that. The big difference between these is that Christianity both admits the reality of sin and admits that we can't change it, but we need to be rescued. Right? These other, these other kind of world systems say... Um, here it is. Here's, here's a path. Here's a plan of how you can get back to God. And Christianity says, here's what God did to get to you. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, because of sin, we're both guilty before God for betraying Him. That's what sin is. It's a betrayal. It's a relational thing. And also stuck in this state. But in Jesus, God came and He lived that perfect life that we needed to live. That's what Peter means when he says righteousness, right? The righteous one for the unrighteous. That would be us. Because he died in the place of sinners. That's what this whole verse is about. And that is what the main, that, that is quite frankly, that is the main thrust of Christianity. If you take Jesus out of Christianity, listen to me, because you can take, frankly, you can take Muhammad out of Islam. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism. What's important is not that person, what's important is what they taught. If you take Jesus out of Christianity, if you take his sin bearing life, uh, his, his, or his sin-bearing death and his, his resurrected life. If he didn't die for sins, if he wasn't resurrected, and that's what that whole um, flesh and the spirit thing means. I wish we could get into that. We can't. But if you take that thing out, the rest of this is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. Look, we, we can't bless in the face of curse. Have you ever tried that? Nuts. We can't do that. We can't suffer in hope. The only way we can suffer in hope is if we believe that our hope is found somewhere other than our circumstances. If there's something beyond our suffering that can, we can point to and say, that's where my hope is. We have to trust in Christ, and only then are we free to show Him to the world. And that brings us to a new identity. Look down at verses 19 to 22. Now look, I wish I could go into this, but... We are already pushing it. I wish I could, I could take you through all this and help you point out what this means. Let me, let me say one thing real quick about verse 19. Look there. Look, look in your bulletins real quick. Verse 19 does not mean that Jesus went down to hell and preached the gospel to anyone who was down there. Okay? That is not what that means. I know some of us think that and we're like, oh, this... I, 
That's confusing. I don't know what to do with it. Okay, that's because it doesn't mean that. This is referencing a very popular Jewish work at the time. Uh, about the 2nd century B.C. up until, uh, well, th- this was written about the 2nd century B.C., um, but ga- stayed popular throughout the early um, decades of the 1st century. There's a book called First Enoch. And it's kind of this uh, Jewish writing talking about how God was going to um, conquer all the Gentiles and all this fun stuff they love to talk about all the time, right? In First Enoch, it speaks in the exact same way as Peter does right here to talk about how God will declare his victory over all the evil forces of the world. And when he does that, when, when the writer of First Enoch does that, he references Genesis 6, which is funny because that's the same thing Peter does right here. Why did he do that? Why did, why did Peter do that? Because, because he knows that all of his readers would, would know Enoch. And he's saying, you, you know that thing that you think is so great about Enoch when God declares his victory to all of the evil forces of the world? That happened in the resurrection of Jesus. And then he talks about baptism and Noah. and okay. But when he talks about baptism, what he says is it's not what's going on with the water, but what it points to, namely incorporation into Jesus. In other words, this whole thing, this whole thing, all of these verses are about a new identity. A new identity connected to the victory of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection over the old ways and inaugurating a renewed creation with a new way of being. All right, why does this matter? It matters because of this. I've said this before, but we need to say it again. Christianity always moves from the indicative to the imperative. It always moves from your identity to your actions. And again, that's the big difference between Christianity and other world religions. Other world religions will tell you, you do these actions to gain an identity. Christianity says, good luck with that. In fact, what you, need, you need a new identity to even do the new actions in the first place. Christianity, if it is true identity, always says that actions flow from identity. Because you cannot create a status of right before God. Because what it means to be right before God is depending on Him. And you can't do that by definition on your own. Some of us hate this. Because we have grown up believing that good people are loved by God and bad people aren't. But what the Bible says, though, is that we are all sinners. And the one who's up here in front of you is like the chief. Look. Let's not get into that contest, okay? We are all sinners and all have to have our identity changed by trusting in Jesus. If not, I don't care how good you think you are. I don't how, I care how good others have told you you are. Before God, you are still independent and thus you are still alienated from Him. God does not want your actions. He does not want your actions. He wants you. He wants you. Now let me conclude. The reason that that shift is supposed to happen in late adolescence from consequence reward to adoption of values is because we come into our own, uh, kind of our own understanding of our personhood. Okay? We move from understanding the world revolving around us and that all that really matters is my immediate needs to the fact that there are these things called people around us. And oh yeah, we belong to that group. We we're like them. And the ones that are closest to us, we begin to adopt their values. We come into our own in our family identity. 
Not as an extension of our parents, but as our own person. And friends, that is how the gospel works too. You cannot show Christ to the world until you have come into the new identity of beloved child of God that comes through faith in Christ. But every beloved child of God must show Him to the world. We must be followers and to follow Him by showing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we just ask Your blessing. I ask that You would continue to work in us. Do not forsake us. Some of us in this room right now are um, wrestling with anger and guilt. Some of us with extreme uh, expressions of shame. But You, O God, are greater than our sin, our guilt, our shame. And You are not even far from us in our anger and our uh, frustrations. So we pray that You would draw near to us, transform us by the power of Your Spirit into those who show Christ into a world that is desperate to see something, something of the world that we all know intuitively that we were created for. Would You draw people to Yourself? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.